Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The most urgent task is, of course, to ensure that Ukraine prevails. All eyes this week have been on Vilnius. The Lithuanian capital has been hosting the NATO summit, a gathering of leaders of the countries that form the transatlantic alliance. The message is that we stand by Ukraine for as long as it takes, and the urgent need is to provide the weapons they need. The main topic on the agenda was, of course, Ukraine, both in terms of the country's aspirations to join NATO, but also the tricky question of how far Western countries are prepared to go to offer security guarantees to a country that is not a member, but is fighting a Russian invasion right on the European continent. The outcome of the NATO summit in Vilnius is very much needed and meaningful success for Ukraine. And I'm grateful to all leaders in NATO countries for very practical and unprecedented support considering decades of our relations support for Ukraine. Today there are security guarantees for Ukraine on the way to NATO, an important package of security guarantees. Today we are... Meanwhile, in Strasbourg, members of the European Parliament have been sitting for their last plenary session before the summer break. On the agenda was a hugely controversial bill, the EU's nature restoration proposal, a key pillar of the European Commission's flagship Green Deal. Here's the EU's Commissioner for the Environment, Oceans and Fisheries, Virginia Sinkovicius. This law is nothing less than the flagship initiative of the European Green Deal, nature and biodiversity pillar, and it's intrinsically linked to its climate pillar, is the first EU legal proposal on nature since 30 years. It is the EU's climate law for biodiversity, and the success of one depends the success on the other. It's been one of the biggest EU policy battles in recent memory. We'll have the latest from Strasbourg. I'm Suzanne Lynch, Politico's Chief Brussels Correspondent. And this week we're joined by our colleague Jan Chensky, who's joining us from Vilnius, and Louise Guillot, our sustainability reporter, who's joining us from Strasbourg. So starting with you, Jan, thanks for joining us. We're speaking to you just as the NATO summit has wrapped up in Vilnius. What have been the main outcomes of this meeting this week in the Lithuanian capital? There's two really core outcomes. The first is, I guess, good news for NATO in that uh, Turkish President Erdogan changed policy and said that he will support Sweden's accession to NATO. 
Turkey, followed by Hungary, had refused, were the only NATO members that refused to still ratify Sweden's membership, which was causing really big problems in the alliance. Turkey was under fierce pressure from uh, the United States, from other NATO members to change policy and let the Swedes in. And that basically solidifies the whole northern flank of NATO. The Baltic Sea becomes a NATO lake. There's a tiny little outlets for Russia, but the sea is now fully under, under NATO's control. The second uh, outcome was a little more ambiguous. Uh, the Ukrainians had gone into the summit really hoping to get a, a very clear signal from the alliance that once the war is over, that they would be allowed into NATO. And they didn't get exactly what they were asking for. NATO spent a long time negotiating its final communique. And the communique does say that there will be conditions attached to Ukraine's eventual accession. And that it's something that has to be agreed by uh, all NATO member countries. So this is more qualified than what the uh, what Kiev was hoping for. President Zelensky had a uncharacteristically fierce Twitter a reaction where he called the communique absurd. He kind of wrote back on that a little bit and uh, said that he was really pleased with some of the other things that NATO was giving. The Ukrainians are getting even more weapons uh, from the uh, French and the Germans. There's a G7 deal to support them financially, militarily. And as uh, uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the uh, NATO chief, uh, emphasized, Ukraine's future place is in NATO. Nobody doubts that. It's just exactly how they get in and when they get in that's that's up in the air. Yeah. So they did seem to suggest it would be a quicker process, but ultimately, you know, it's not happening anytime soon seems to be the outcome, which I suppose in reality people were expecting. I mean, there was also the issues of security guarantees for Ukraine. I mean, what happened on that front? That's not actually something that NATO itself can decide more kind of bilaterally among among some of the members. Exactly. NATO itself is a security guarantee. You're in the club or you're not in the club. If you're in the club, you're covered by Article 5. That means if somebody attacks you, it's considered an attack on all alliance members and you get... Uh, the big boys like the Americans and the French and the Brits step in to defend you. So NATO doesn't really extend security guarantees outside of alliance membership. So what they're doing as a sort of a patch in the meantime is that Ukraine will negotiate uh, bilateral security deals with some other countries. And also there's a commitment, a long-term commitment to ensure that Ukraine continues to get financial and military aid to continue to be able to fight the war against Russia. Um, when it comes to NATO membership, President Zelensky was clear. He, he understands that uh, while the war continues, there's no way that Ukraine can be uh, admitted into NATO. That would open up a huge can of worms where potentially the rest of the alliance would suddenly find itself in a war with Russia. So there's neither Ukraine nor the rest of the alliance sees that it's realistic to join while the war is on. What Kiev wants is once the shooting stops to be immediately admitted into the alliance to prevent a future Russian attack. Mm. I mean, let's talk a little bit about the Erdogan story. The Turkish president knows how to keep them waiting, keep them guessing. I mean, it was just on the eve of the summit. He announces, took everyone by surprise, that in fact, after what a year, he was actually going to lift Turkey's opposition to Sweden joining. But he did, Jan, make this kind of extraordinary link, saying uh, that it's somehow linked to Turkey's accession to the EU being sped up. He seemed to suggest this now straight away. We had Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, pouring cold water on this. But uh, I mean, what was the talk around that whole issue? I mean, Turkey and the EU, is this going to bring them closer together? 
Yeah, sort of Erdogan's uh, dance of a thousand veils as he sort of dodged and weaved and got as much, extracted as much as he could for for Turkey out of this very involved and convoluted process. Everybody says, no, of course, it has no impact. But of course, it does have an impact. Uh, the, uh, he met with Charles Michel. Uh, the Swedes promised that they would support a tighter integration. What it has done, I mean, I don't think anybody realistically thinks that Turkey is on any kind of a track to actually become a full EU member. But it does open up the prospect of some tighter future relationship between Turkey and the EU going beyond what Turkey has now. So he did put that in motion by this ploy of his. Generally, you can see that Ankara has shifted in a more noticeably pro-Western direction since Erdogan's re-election. They gave back the Ukrainian POWs to the fury of Moscow. So they're back in Ukraine. Erdogan openly said that he sees Ukraine's future as a NATO member. Now they've dropped their resistance to Sweden. So when push comes to shove, Turkey is a problematic NATO member and an independent power, but it still sees itself as part of the very broad kind of Western family. And in the end, that's where its home is. Yes, and we were writing this week about this potential new front in EU-Turkey relations. As you mentioned there, Jan, there's no sense that, you know, Turkey's going to join the EU anytime soon. But there, we are picking up things here in Brussels that perhaps there could be a revival of the of the customs agreement. Turkey has been pushing for visa liberalisation for some time. And a sense now that EU leaders are going to engage with this next week foreign affairs ministers are going to tackle this issue. And and we were hearing on background here that the EU had anyway uh, been set to reassess its relationship with Turkey, A, after Turkey's election, which happened earlier this year, and also the Greek election uh, that happened, because obviously a relation between Greece and Turkey, always a tricky issue for the EU when it comes to its relationship with Turkey. Thanks for that, Jan, but stay on the line. We're going to shift now our focus because the EU just gives on giving in terms of uh, stories as we get into the summer months. But we're joined by Louise Guillaume from Strasbourg. Uh, Louise, she's a reporter on sustainability. And Louise, you've been covering this really interesting vote that's been happening this week in Strasbourg on the nature restoration law. Now, that sounds quite technical, but just bring us up to speed. I mean, what is the nature restoration law in simple terms? It's really hit the headlines in the last few weeks. So the nature restoration law its goal is really to tackle the problem of biodiversity loss. So, for example, scientists have been uh, warning that a million species are threatened with extinction. And so with this law, the European Commission tries to address that problem. Also, the problem of pollinators decline, which can have negative impact on food production in the long run uh, and the capacity of farmers and foresters to basically do their job in the long term. But the law is also not only about restoring parts of nature that have been degraded because of human activities, for instance, but the law is also about the EU's climate goal in helping achieve the climate neutrality goal by 2050 that the Commission had set under the Green Deal. Because healthy ecosystems can help trap greenhouse gas emissions. For example, like forests are known to be a carbon sink, so have the capacity to absorb CO2 emissions. And so the idea of this law is to help restore these ecosystems so that they can absorb more CO2 and help achieve the Green Deal objectives. 
Okay, so the European Commission came forward with this law. As you explained there, it's a key plank of their overall climate policy. They're, you know, much fated Green New Deal and it deals with the biodiversity element of this. But opposition started growing against this commission proposal a couple of months ago now. Explain to us what was the criticism of this proposal that's supposed to protect biodiversity in the EU? Indeed, opposition has been growing forever three, four months. So the main criticism have been spearheaded by conservative politicians, especially the ones from the European People's Party. And they have led a campaign arguing that the legislation will have bad consequences for farmers, for foresters, for fishermen, uh, for the capacity of member states to build renewable energy projects, for example. So the main criticisms were really about like the fact that the restoration measures could clash with other economic activities and other economic interests, like building renewable ha- renewable projects, building new housing. That was, for example, a big issue in the Netherlands. Or there was also one of the main criticism by the Conservative European People's Party was also that the law could potentially take land away from farmers and from agricultural production and have rippling effect on uh, food security in the EU, something that both scientists but also the European Commission have kind of debunked and also fact-checked and then denied. So you've got your classic business and farmers on one side, climate-conscious lawmakers on the other, and it's really culminated in this vote this week. Now, as you mentioned, there's the EPP, the centre-right party, led by Manfred Weber, the very well-known German uh, politician. He kind of staked his reputation on this. He had led the opposition. And of course, there's an interesting twist here because Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, who is obviously behind this deal, is from the same political group as him in Germany. So he had staked his reputation on this. He was leading opposition. And then we had the vote this week on Wednesday afternoon. Talk us through the result. Yes. So until the very start of the vote, nobody knew what would be the outcome. It was like extremely, extremely close. Uh, On the one hand, you had the European Conservative parties, including the European People's Party, but also the European Conservative and Reformist, the far-right identity and democracy, and part of the Liberal Renew group who wanted to reject the proposal outright. And on the other hand and on the other side, You had the Greens, the Socialists and Democrats, the left, the far left group, and also a large chunk of the Liberal Renew group uh, defending the legislation. And finally, a couple of Irish, Czech, uh, Nordic MEPs from the European People's Party decided to broke ranks and vote against the party line and and support the nature restoration law, which definitely contributed to tip the balance, basically, in favor of, of the adoption of the decisions. We have first a proposal to reject the commission proposal. The vote is by roll call and the vote is open. Vote is closed. And it is rejected. Thereby, we therefore move to vote on the amendments. The nature restoration law uh, was adopted by a majority of parliament, even though that majority was very narrow in the end, which means a big 
victory for the defenders of the law, but also a big loss for the conservatives. And uh, it's Jada Manfred Weber who really led the campaign to kill this bill. So a big blow for Manfred Weber there. You know, he put his neck on the line here. He thought he was going to have the votes to scupper this. But it sounds like the nature restoration law is going to live another day. What happens now, Louise? So now interinstitutional negotiation with the Council of the EU representing the, the 27 member states and the parliament together with the European Commission will start in the next uh, couple of months. And the Spanish presidency of the council has said they will make this proposal a priority. So we very much expect a deal on this legislation by the end of the year. Is there any possibility that this will be changed again, that it could be watered down, for example? So the text that was passed was already watered down compared to the ambition that certain groups, especially green groups, had. And it's possible that during interinstitutional negotiation, the text could be further watered down. Jan, bringing you back in here, putting back on your energy and climate hat, I mean, this was a real kind of moment of reckoning for the Green New Deal. This has been one of the flagship policies of Ursula von der Leyen's commission. I think it's part of a broader resistance to some of the the Green Deal aims. I mean, when the commission launched this project a few years ago, it was quite far in the future and the economic and social consequences were more distant. This is now really starting to happen and it's having an impact. We saw this a few months ago with the unexpected German resistance to the agreement to the 2035 car phase out. They did an unprecedented effort to change and block. They got a bit of a concession at the end, but there's sort of there was big fear among many car making countries that their industries will be eviscerated as uh, the industry shifts away from combustion engine cars. Now we have this uh, this nature restoration law, and there's a sense, especially on the conservative side of the spectrum, that the prospect of job losses and economic turmoil start to count for more. And so the resistance to this program is rising and is likely to continue increasing. And we're likely to see some of these debates played out in a number of elections in the next few months. I think in Poland, we've got the European elections in a year where these climate issues, you know, how far are the public prepared to go? It's been a cost of living crisis, etc., energy crisis, but fascinating the politics around the EU's climate ambitions. Jan and Louise, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up, what's the optimum outcome from the war in Ukraine? both for Ukraine and Europe. Is it too early to talk about peace negotiations? Stay with us. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations 
responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Ukraine has been keen to stress that it's fighting to win the peace on its own terms. But the question of what form this peace could take is a complex one. This week, I sat down with two experts from the Chatham House think tank. I'm James Nixie. I'm the director of the Russian Eurasia program at Chatham House. Orisa Lutsevich, I'm the deputy director of the Russian Eurasia program and head of Ukraine Forum. We spoke about their new research on how Russia's war in Ukraine might end. So thank you so much uh, for joining us on the podcast. This report is a fascinating read. I mean, James, starting with you, I suppose one of the big themes here that that stood out to me is this concept that the idea of a peace, of a negotiated peace, of a negotiated settlement is itself a very controversial issue. And and you guys kind of push back on this in this report. That's right. Uh, Look, nobody wants peace more than the Ukrainians and, and most of the Western world as well. But the reality is, is there's different ways of getting there. You can have a peace which is accommodating of Russian ambitions and desires and appetites. Or you can have one which gives Ukraine the best possible chance at arriving at a state of sovereignty, independence, full statehood, and just being a normal Western country. But several of the paths towards peace are pitfalls, they're traps often designed by Russia itself, but sometimes actually just just thought up by well-meaning, well-intentioned individuals, which look for concessions, look for if Russia has a whole cake, you know, just to give half of a cake back. And they are seductive in many ways, because it seems, yeah, well, why shouldn't Ukraine be neutral? Why shouldn't Russian supposed security concerns be accommodated? Uh, why shouldn't there be a, a cordon sanitaire or a buffer zone around Russian states? I, I, you know, at the very outside, you can almost understand it. But when you look deeper into it, you see it restricts the rights, freedoms of 45 million people in Ukraine and another 145 million people in the other post-Soviet states excluding Russia. Orisha, in the report, you outline nine different approaches, as James has kind of alluded to there, that have been suggested in various forums to end the war. Can you give us a few examples of some of these approaches that you outline in this report, which you then go on to say are are fallacies? So there are several of those pathways that we believe will actually aggravate situation rather than provide a solution. And two of them I will highlight. One is that Ukraine should concede some territory in exchange for peace because Russia has, uh, you know, it's a big adversary, has more people, it can continue this war longer. So is it worth paying the price? And the answer that we give in the report is basically by pushing Ukraine and the fear is that the West will push Ukraine to concede the territory rather than Ukraine itself, we will be rewarding the crime of aggression. We will be rewarding war criminals in the Kremlin, as the court uh, from the International Criminal Court has the arrest order for President Putin for crimes. And also, uh, we are unlikely, this is very important, to satisfy this appetite for territorial expansion that Russia has. And we do know, let's come back to how this war, the big invasion started with this uh, ultimatum that uh, Russia put on the table that included actually whole of Eastern Europe, former Warsaw Warsaw Pact, saying uh, the NATO should move away from this territory. 
on that issue of territorial integrity and the territorial gains, obviously one of the big questions is Crimea. This dates back to 2014 with the uh, Russian annexation of Crimea. Um, I mean, in reality, is Ukraine going to be able to win back Crimea? Is, is that a fallacy? Is that a, a wishful thinking on the part of the Ukrainian government? In reality, it's much easier to conduct a successful military operation with the right capabilities in Crimea because it's a peninsula than on the landlocked parts that are bordering Russia where it's easier to supply and continue the uh, entrenched uh, warfare. If Ukraine gets long-range missiles, if Ukraine gets enough drones, it can target the Bay of Sevastopol, it can target the carriage bridge that would cut off connection to Crimea. It's a peninsula. You mentioned other examples. So one more, because we are just here following up on the outcomes of the Vilnius summit, is that Ukraine should basically agree to being a neutral or even militarized neutral, but should not be part of NATO. That that would also satisfy Russia claims for its supposed security concerns. And, and we think it's a false pass because Ukraine was neutral when it was invaded. And actually, because there was security vacuum in Eastern Europe, in Ukraine, it enabled actually Russia's aggression. And James? Yeah, I mean, I'm, we're selecting at random from a nine here, and I know we don't have time to go into them all. But I mean, one of the things that crops up the most often is that we shouldn't defeat Russia too soundly. Um, you hear Macron say that uh, Russia must not be humiliated. Of course, you never hear that Ukraine must not be humiliated, by the way. And that strikes me as being unwise on the basis that they're invoking things like the Treaty of Versailles, whereby Germany in 1919 was pushed so hard that it gave rise to fascism and Hitler. But the problem with that argument is that we're not really in 1919, we're actually in 1939. We've, Russians have already used the argument that we pushed them down in the 1990s and that gave, gave rise to what is where it is now. Russia is already a fascist state and it's already at war you know, engaging in the largest land war in Western Europe since that Second World War. So I think it's, 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 it's a false analogy, as so many historical analogies really are. And ultimately, if we don't have an unambiguous victory over Russia, then ultimately this problem will come back to us down the line. We're just kicking the can down the road. So, I mean, we've been living with this for 23 years and Russia has been engaging in radiological and chemical weapons attacks. Look what it's done in Syria. Look what it's done, uh, falsified elections in the US. You know, you can go on and on. And I think if nothing else, this war, horrific as it is, and the, the, the blood that the Ukrainians have spilled on, on, on our behalf is perhaps an opportunity. It's an opportunity to ultimately get a better Russia if it can under, finally undergo a process of de-Sovietization, uh, which it never did back in 1991. So I hope that no, no, nobody here is Russophobic, but we all want a better Russia, which is at peace with itself, at peace with the rest of the world. And it's only by really experiencing that defeat that we can get there in the end. As you mentioned there, we've just come out of the NATO summit this week. The reality is that in some parts of Europe, I wouldn't quite say war fatigue, but there are questions being raised about how long and how far Europe should support Ukraine. We see it in the United States, where at the moment, uh, we've got a core group of right-wing Republicans trying to actually stop, effectively, funding to Ukraine with the defence package that they're discussing at the moment. So that's where we are politically. I mean, people were waiting to hear about the spring offensive. They wanted good news from Ukraine. Do you think that, ultimately, Europeans are going to continue this level of support and that they're going to maybe they're going to fall into a situation where they're prepared to give enough support, but not quite enough to win this war decisively? 
this is exactly the, the root cause of the problem, and that's why we published this report, because our assessment is that the Western allies are supporting Ukraine with one foot on the brake. And if we just continue, even if we just continue, we'll not be able to safeguard Europe's future. This is a very important message we would like to deliver, because if indeed, rhetorically, we believe that Ukraine is defending our values, is defending European way of life, we should be spending more than 0.2% of combined GDP on military assistance. And some countries like France are spending 0.05%, 20 times less than Germany, for example, although Germany gets often a blame. So I think that we are not, you know, walking the talk uh, enough. We are too self-deterring. And I think this NATO summit showed that this kind of, again, a bit, I think, false narrative fear of escalation is overstretching too much. And it's giving Russia a license to commit these war crimes and continue the war. One idea this report challenges is the idea, the concept that all wars end at the negotiating table. Tell me about your feeling about that concept. You hear that a lot from people who are advocating peace at this point. Well, it's just not true. Uh, most wars actually don't end up at the negotiating table when the stakes are absolute. So as in the American Civil War, the Second World War, the Napoleonic Wars, they did not end at the negotiating table. They ended after the war had been won, but in fact, they were fought through until victory. So I understand, again, that people think, well, we, we, should, we, should, we might as well do it now in order to save lives. But actually, that's just not what the vast majority of Ukrainian population want. If they wanted something different, then, of course, we should support them in that. We shouldn't be more Ukrainian than the Ukrainians. But uh, to say that, that this is what ha- always happens, and I know that Rishi Sunak has said that, that this, this conflict will be ended at the negotiating table, it's, it's just historically untrue. I think also there's a slight difference between what are we negotiating? Are we negotiating the ending to war or are we negotiating the post-war status? And this is where there's a difference. There will be, I'm sure, negotiation around how we come out of this war and rearrange security in Europe. It's a fascinating concept and one that's going to be with us for some time. In this report, you also put forward essential conditions, you call them, that need to be met to move forward and to make sure that this doesn't happen again, etc. Could you talk us through some of those suggestions in the report? So number one is actually defeating Russian troops on Ukrainian territory and ensuring that Russian military capability is decimated so that it cannot threaten neither Ukraine nor neighboring countries such as Moldova, Georgia or uh, countries in Central Asia. So another condition is, and that is short term, is to protect actually countries around Russia and, and also protect eastern flank of NATO, which we see increasingly NATO taking action on. And a bit more midterm to long term is actually we advocate the necessary transformation that must happen within Russia uh, as much as amongst the elite and amongst Russian people about what kind of behavior is acceptable in the international relations. What is the place of Russia? What is the respect that it owes to its neighboring sovereign countries? And that will take longer, but we believe it's as key as first two objectives. And then finally, if I may, in the longer term, that Russia must acknowledge that it has committed the most intolerable crimes and that there will have to be a judicial and a financial reckoning for this. And already we are hearing talk of some kind of court to prosecute the crime of aggression, for example. We've already had discussions starting about the reconstruction of Ukraine. James Arisha, thank you very much for joining us. And that's their report, How to End Russia's War in Ukraine, Safeguarding Europe's Future and the Dangers of a False Peace. Thanks for joining us here in the podcast studio in Brussels. 
Thank, Thank you, you for the conversation. And we'll add a link to that report in our show notes. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Please do follow the podcast wherever you're listening so that you never miss an episode. This week's episode was produced and edited by our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez, with special thanks to Julia Poloni. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. See you next week.